major chip industry produced more transistors than the combined quantity of all goods produced by all other companies in all other industries in all of human history. Nothing else comes close. Hello and welcome back to What China Wants with Sam Olson and Stuart Patterson. And Stuart, that was a quote from an excellent new book called Chip War, which discusses how microchips have become so central to not only the world economy, but modern life as we know it. Which, of course, means that the control of who produces them becomes incredibly important geopolitically and geoeconomically, of course. It's no wonder, therefore, that chips have become a key point of contention between China and the West, and not just because Taiwan, that renegade province 100 miles off China's coast, is home to the majority of worldwide chip production. And here to join Stuart and I today is the author of that book, Chris Miller. Now, Chris, you teach international history at Fletcher School at uh, Tufts University, if I'm right. That's correct. And you had a lot of accolades for your new book, uh, Chip War, including, I think, a recommendation by the FT as one of the business books of the year. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Okay, great. Well, it's quite an important subject. Uh, and welcome along to help us talk about it. You might have heard Stuart and I discuss microchips quite a lot in previous podcasts, but obviously having an expert like you is, is, is a bit more fun for the listener rather than just hearing us two talk about things. But I suppose the most important thing for those who haven't really listened to us talk about chips before is why are they so crucial? What's the importance of, of chips globally? Well, the typical person rarely sees a semiconductor, but in fact, we're reliant on them for almost all aspects of daily life from your automobile, which might have dozens or hundreds of semiconductors inside to your smartphone or PC. Modern life can't work without them. And the production of chips is controlled by a small number of companies in a small number of countries. Uh, and increasingly, for the first time in several decades, the chip industry is being upended not only by the competition between companies for commercial advantage, but also by competition between countries for geopolitical advantage. And at the, at the center of this competition is U.S.-China rivalry for a greater influence over the production uh, of advanced semiconductors. So, so Chris, uh, some of our listeners will have heard uh, in recent weeks of the Biden administration's embargo on certain types of chips being exported to China. And some of them might have also seen that um, this doesn't just extend to chips that have been manufactured in the United States, but it extends to third countries who use some kind of American-derived technology, either in the manufacture of semiconductor manufacturing equipment or in the chips themselves. So perhaps this would be a good opportunity for you to explain to our listeners uh, the differentiation between chips, because obviously they're not all fungible, and to tell us what the purpose of this embargo is. The goal of the recent export control moves is twofold. First, to prevent China from accessing the types of chips needed for high-performance computing and AI applications in data centers. And second, to prevent China from producing some of the most advanced chips domestically. Today, China spends about as much money importing chips each year as it does 
importing oil. So it's hugely dependent on the import of advanced ships from Taiwan, from Korea, from Japan, from the United States. And it's identified this as a major vulnerability that it's been trying to address over the past decade with uh, many billions of dollars of government uh, subsidies. But the leaders in shipmaking are Taiwan, South Korea, and the United States. And today it's basically impossible to produce not only the most advanced chips, but any sort of fairly cutting edge chip without using equipment from five companies uh, across the world, three in California, one in the Netherlands, one in Japan. And it's possible to design an advanced chip without using software from three companies all of which are based in the United States. So you need to access US as well as Japanese and Dutch technology to make an advanced semiconductor, regardless of where you are in the world. And that means that when the US cuts off China's ability to access this machinery as it's done with its export control in October, China simply can't produce anything close to cutting edge chips. And similarly, because Taiwanese producers or South Korean producers are equally reliant on many of the same tools, they have to follow uh, U.S. export controls as well. So the U.S. has made clear that no one in the world can produce certain types of advanced chips and then transfer them to China. So in the book, you talk about the fact that China is not pursuing an all domestic uh, supply chain or chip supply chain is that would be impossible. But where do you think China is going instead? I mean, if if chips are vitally important to the Chinese economy and also to their exports, etc., surely then being cut off from American chip expertise and Western chip expertise more broadly means that they're incredibly vulnerable. So where, where do they go from here? I think the Chinese government has faced a bit of a dilemma created by its own policymaking process in the semiconductor space. If you talk to people in the Chinese semiconductor industry, they will readily admit that self-sufficiency or even a de-Americanized supply chain is a very, very long way away for China when it comes to advanced semiconductors. Uh, But it's not clear that that information has made it up all the way to the top of the Chinese government, or if it has, it's been pretty heavily discounted um, because the Chinese government has been pursuing an industrial policy at home in the chip space, as well as a foreign policy abroad that has been uh, in some ways perfectly calibrated to trigger exactly these types of export controls from the United States. And so today the Chinese ship industry finds itself in a really difficult situation. It's only really feasible to move up the technological production process, move up the value chain by importing technology from the U.S. and allied countries. But it's getting more and more difficult to do that because of uh, Chinese industrial policy at home and and foreign policy abroad. And so I think if you had to assess Chinese policy in this space over the past decade, you wouldn't give it that high of a mark because they put themselves in such a complicated and difficult situation. So... It's all very well noted about about China's uh, supply chain issues with the government, etc. But to what degree can China uh, fulfil its economic goals? It's quite ambitious economic goals, especially around technology. It wants to be the leader in AI, it wants to be the leader in automotive vehicles, etc. Uh, without those um, microchips and without that Western microchip expertise. So what would you suggest that are China's options now in terms of fulfilling its five-year technology goals? Well, I would say first off, when it comes to AI, phrases like leader in AI are 
are phrases that political leaders like but are hard to assess in practice. Um, so I think we should we should treat all uh, political goals in China or in other countries in that sphere with with some amount of skepticism just because it's not clear what they mean. But I think what is clear is that if you ask why in any country there's a lot more application of artificial intelligence today than 10 years ago, it's not primarily because we have smarter algorithms, though no doubt we got better algorithms today than a decade ago. It's not primarily because we have more data available, though perhaps we do in certain situations. The key differentiating factor is that compared to 10 years ago, chips are many times more effective than they were a decade ago. And that's because for the past 50 years, Moore's law has meant an exponential growth in processing power on chips, a doubling in computing power. Computer programmers' intelligence hasn't doubled in the last decade, but processing power provided by chips has. And that's why we're seeing AI applied to so many different parts of the economy today relative to the past. What that means for China is that if it's unable to access the most advanced chips for AI purposes in data centers, it's going to face real difficulties compared to every other country in the world in further advances in this sphere, because the cost of running AI in data centers, which is the number of chips you need multiplied by the the energy consumption of those chips is going to become much more expensive relative to in any other country. Chris, can I just ask it? And you mentioned um, a couple of times now the word allies when you're talking about the export control, and you know clearly the the, the chip industry spans across nations, although there are a select few that are at the leading edge. Is your sense that the Biden administration has been a little disappointed? by the lack of sort of voluntary buy-in by the likes of the Dutch government with regard to ASML and, and, and potentially even with the Taiwanese and the South Koreans in terms of their sort of slight reluctance and sort of pushback against uh, the export controls that they've tried to to put in. And, and, and perhaps you could try and quantify for us you know, how important that Chinese market is for these companies, because although we, we all know that China is a huge importer of, of semiconductors, presumably a lot of these are actually very low end semiconductors that go into assembly for all the sort of electronic goods that China then re-exports. So they're not actually for the Chinese domestic market. They're just a part of the sort of supply chain. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. And I think the key question for looking at the efficacy of export controls is the machine tools that are needed to produce semiconductors. And these are the most precise and expensive machine tools humans have ever created. And their production is uh, is controlled by a really small oligopoly of companies, most of which have been in their market positions for uh, decades, and in some cases, almost half a century. Uh, and the two countries that matter besides the United States in this sphere are really Japan and the Netherlands. The Koreans and the Taiwanese produce a lot of chips, but they produce chips using mostly imported machine tools from the Netherlands and Japan and the United States. When it comes to um, multilateralization of export controls, which is what the US wants, I think there are a couple of dynamics at play. Um, the first is that Every country besides the U.S. has a very strong incentive to publicly uh, demur about export controls so they can tell the Chinese that they're being forced into it. And that's a very rational strategy. Uh, I think the U.S. government expected that to some extent. And so if you look at how the Netherlands has approached export controls on EUV lithography machines, the most advanced equipment, they have uh, created a situation in which the headlines in international media are U.S. government forces Netherlands to impose export controls. 
whether uh, that's a completely accurate description or whether there's more Dutch initiative than the headline suggests. I think there's room for debate and discussion. Um, but if you're in the Netherlands, that's a great headline to have because then you can go to the Chinese and apologize about your overbearing American partners. I think the Japanese have a similar uh, dynamic that's partly at play. Now, there's obviously in both of these countries debate between the policymaking process, the national security bureaucracy, and the companies. Uh, themselves. But I, I think when you zoom out and look at the debate in the Netherlands and the debate in Japan about China and technology, what you'll find is a pretty similar trajectory to the shift in, in the U.S. view over the past decade. And in Japan in particular, I think the, the median view is, if anything, more hawkish on Chinese tech than in the U.S. government. Uh, less open, um, less public uh, about many of these issues, but actually more hawkish in practice. And so the key question from the perspective of efficacy of export controls is not what's the media headline or what's the formal policy, but it's what's actually happening on the ground. And so I think we'll have to see over the next couple of years, is there a meaningful leakage in the U.S. export controls via allied countries or not? If to the extent that there is leakage, I think we should expect the U.S. to turn the screws even tighter. Um, but that might also be a reason to expect that uh, those two governments might on their own take measures to make sure that leakage is, is controlled to a certain extent and doesn't uh, attract the attention of the U.S. Congress or U.S. regulators. Um, so if you look at um, the chip export ban, then you might think that um, China is basically going to suffer quite a lot. But at some point, surely China is going to be saying, we need to push back on America. But that said... When America pushed the ban on Huawei, maybe you could explain that a little bit about actually how that rolled out. China didn't seem to do much. And you say in your book that they were more happy to let Huawei become a second-rate tech player than push back on America. So first of all, what happened to Huawei? And secondly, why didn't China push back? And I suppose after that is, will that set the pattern for what China is going to do in the future? Yeah, so with Huawei, the U.S. prevented um, any company that uses U.S. technology from producing certain types of advanced chips for Huawei uh, without a license from the Commerce Department. And so that meant um, in practice that Huawei couldn't turn to TSMC, the biggest Taiwanese chip maker, and have that company produce chips that Huawei designs. And that had a major impact on Huawei smartphones, on Huawei's telecoms equipment business, and Huawei's cloud computing uh, business, and has forced a, a huge set of uh, uh, changes for the company and and major losses over the past couple of years. And as you say, Sam, Huawei did, uh, I'm sorry, China did basically nothing in response. It created um, a regulation by which it could punish foreign companies, uh, but then put no foreign companies on that list. So has has not retaliated. And the reason is that retaliation, the Chinese leadership concluded, would be more costly than, than not retaliating. Uh, and I think that has uh, created an interesting precedent for the current export controls. We'll have to see whether China responds. Certainly, the, the recent round of controls are even harsher than the controls uh, on Huawei. Um, but if I had to guess right now, I would guess that that provides a pretty good template for understanding what China is likely to do in response to this round of controls as well. Because the optimal response from China's perspective is to do something that hurts the U.S. more than hurts China. But the number of potential responses on that list is actually, I think, quite low. Okay, so this is where I've got a slight problem, not with what you're saying, but with the logic that supports your argument. Again, you, you state it very well, but I think that there is a, a gap in the logic, which is that China isn't going to do anything, even though we know that China has set in store 
its dominance, however you define that political economically, um, of certain industries. And it's telling its people that it will be a world leader and that the technology of the future will be China's. So if that's what it's telling its people, but it's not going to be able to achieve that because America is putting export controls on is the gap, therefore, something that China can bridge and, and perhaps well, can bridge by doing something more conflicty with America, either over Taiwan or directly with America or, or something like that? Because at the moment, I'm struggling to see how they can square the circle of their stated tech ambitions by what America is doing. Well, I think there's uncertainty both both in, in my analysis, but also in China's analysis as to what China's capabilities will be over the next decade. You know, I, I think, in my view, is I think a consensus in the chip industry that China is going to face real difficulties in domesticating a lot of these machine tool technologies needed to produce semiconductors. But there's no certainty there. And my guess is that Chinese leaders are getting rosier predictions than I'm giving you about China's capabilities. And that only makes sense because when China's leaders go to domestic machine tool firms and say, will you be capable of solving this national task over the next five or 10 years if we give you vast sums of money? It's easy to imagine CEOs of those companies saying, of course, we'll be able to achieve these national tasks, uh, regardless of their actual level of confidence. So I, I suspect that actually China's leaders are more confident than I am in China's ability to reach these goals, which is why they might think it's in their interest to wait and see. Um, Chris... If we look at the sort of evolution of the sort of geoeconomic pushback from the United States against China, you know, we started with the Trump tariffs, which seemed to arguably induce a, a sort of the phase one trade deal, which was sort of highly transactional. And obviously, the Chinese haven't delivered on any of that. And then we had some sort of export controls, didn't we, which sort of drove ZTE potentially into the ground, which is a sort of Chinese chip manufacturer. And then Trump seemed to actually just let them off the hook at the last minute. Uh, you, you would know more about that than, than I and, and correct me if I'm wrong. But then these export controls, the way you're sort of describing the impact, um, they seem to me to mark a, a, a profound shift in America's approach in the sense that they seem, A, very targeted, B, aimed really at containment of China, which is the first you know, policy We've seen, I think, that to the outside observer, at, at least, d does seem to be aimed at pulling the rug from under China's feet, if you like, rather than what might be termed sort of equilibrizing pushback to compensate for the asymmetry of, of trade relations and economic exchange in the past. W would you interpret this as a, a sort of a new front with a new objective and the beginnings of a much more succinct and targeted approach to China-US rivalry? So I think if you look at the past uh, five or 10 years of, of US approaches in this issue, you've got to differentiate Trump and the tariffs, which were driven by the president, from the much broader tech focus, which was driven by the bureaucracy, driven by the intelligence agencies, driven by um, the Defense Department, driven by the National Security Council from the late Obama uh, administration all the way up to the Biden administration. And so those are, I think, really two separate tracks. And I think you can find instances where President Trump got involved in issues and there was back and forth, like the, the tariffs that you mentioned. If you chart semiconductor uh, regulations, you'll find 
almost exclusive tightening over time. And you'll find that they're driven largely by the bureaucracy. And I think what we've seen over the past uh, month in U.S. regulations is is the culmination of a lot of uh, the prior steps that has got bipartisan backing and uh, backing across the U.S. government bureaucracy. And so I think we should interpret these as, as staying in place for a long time. And I think you're right, Stuart, that they do uh, signal a more zero-sum approach to tech competition than in the past, I think that's a, a recognition on uh, the U.S.'s side that there's a zero-sum approach to military power pursued both by Beijing and by Washington, and that semiconductors are going to be crucial, already are, but will increasingly be crucial to next-generation military systems. And if the U.S. is going to keep its military edge in the Taiwan Straits and in the Western Pacific more generally, it's got to have a major edge in computing power so it can apply that computing technology to military systems. And so this is not really, I don't think, about the same thing that Trump's tariffs were about, which is about economic issues and jobs and commercial success. This is very much about who's got the computing power to apply to cybersecurity, to intelligence collection, and to military systems. Uh, And that's something that the U.S. has historically had a major advantage in. China has closed that gap. And as China's closed that gap, it's coincided with a vast expansion of China's military uh, in the Western Pacific. And so the U.S. has more need than ever before to have a big gap in computing power because it's facing a big gap in quantitative terms. It's got fewer ships, fewer missiles, fewer drones than the Chinese, and will have even fewer in 10 years' time. So it needs a lot more transistors, to put it very crudely, to make up for the fact that the Chinese are going to have a lot more military systems in the Western Pacific. Okay, so what's all this going to do to Chinese influence, for example, through digital infrastructure building, which it has accrued a lot of of influence through. Do you think that um, the days of Chinese using the the digital Silk Road to mass influence globally are beginning to wane? Um, I mean, I can't see how China is going to be able to do all the fancy dancy systems if it hasn't got access to the, the chips. I think that will face uh, growing difficulties. Now, it's it's still the case that the U.S. has only cut off China's access to a very, very small portion of the chips that it currently buys. So I haven't seen great estimates quantitatively, but a couple percentage points of the chips that China normally buys will be cut off. 90-something percent will still be available to China. So this isn't a cliff edge in terms of China's technology. This is the U.S. trying to say, we're going to stop China's advances on high-performance data centers going forward. And so over time, if the U.S. export controls work, there will be a growing gap in data centers between uh, what's possible in China, what's possible in the rest of the world. But and so that will have an impact on digital Silk Road efforts over time, but it's not going to be um, a dramatic deceleration over a course of a year or two. This has been really interesting for our listeners, I think, to hear a bit more about the specifics of the of the chip industry. But your title is Chip War. Do you think that this is actually stimulating a, a war over chips as in a kinetic war? Or do you think this is going to be something which is kept to the economic arena moving forward? Well, I certainly hope that uh, this doesn't stimulate a war, but I think we should be highly cognizant of the fact that in all major powers, semiconductors are thought of largely due to their importance in defense systems. The first chips emerged for missile guidance computers in the early Cold War. 
And today, if you think of what it takes to fly an advanced drone, you need a ton of processing power, lots of chips to manage all of the sensors, radar, infrared, LIDAR, et cetera. All that requires immense uh, digital signals processing. It's all about semiconductors. And so you can't understand the semiconductor space today or the role that governments are playing trying to reshape semiconductor supply chains unless you understand their importance for military systems. And so in that sense, I think chip war is is the right way to look at it. Not that it's going to cause a war, but that it will be crucial to the future of warfare. And whoever controls the most advanced computing power will have a major advantage in terms of converting that into military power. Okay, so last one. Does that mean that if China takes over Taiwan, uh, that means that we in the West get cut off from Taiwanese chips? We are basically unable to compete against the Chinese military? Well, I think there's a, a number of big jumps there. First, <laughs> if, it, if China takes over Taiwan with a war, uh, it's unlikely that Taiwanese facilities will survive a war. So that's, that's step one. If China manages somehow to assert control over Taiwan without a war, that would be a very different and more dangerous situation. There's then a process of applying semiconductors to military systems, which is something that takes a fair amount of time to do. But yes, uh, I think we should be concerned that as China, uh, if China succeeds in domesticating more advanced ship technology or acquiring it from elsewhere, that will feed into their military systems over time. And we've got plenty of evidence for how that already has fed into Chinese military systems over the past decade or two. And you know, we've got great open source evidence of China using U.S. chip technology in military systems. And so I think it's understandable that the Pentagon is saying we're facing more pressure than ever to defend our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific region from chips that are powering Chinese military systems. We've got to find a way to change this. Great. Thanks very much, Chris Miller. Chip War uh, is out now and uh, go and buy it and learn a bit more about what could be the precipice we're about to step into. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.